Welcome to Artwork, Fab NYC's podcast that looks at how art works in the world. I'm Ryan Gillum, Executive Director of Fab NYC in Downtown Art. This episode was curated by our friends and colleagues at the Laundromat Project. Hello, my name is Aisha Williams, and I'm with the Laundromat Project. Hello, I'm Atuira Mosfermin with the Laundromat Project, and we would like to welcome you to the LP's 10-year anniversary special on the Create Change Artists in Residence, uh, Class 2009. Today we are joined by Rachel Falcone and Michael Primo, the leadership and minds behind Storyline Media. Cool. I want to add a question that is not there. <laughs> sure. sure. Just have a conversation. Just yeah. to keep it, you know. Uh, and I'm curious, like, how did you found out about the LP, like, to begin with? Like, you oh, know. Great question. What was, like, the... You didn't know the LP existed and then the LP was on your radar, like... I don't remember. That's a great question. Um, you have to think about that. <laughs> I'm sure it was through Risa somehow. I'm sure I met Risa somewhere. We met her somewhere. That's a good question. I don't know how that came across. I mean, it's been I so long. Think about, right? It's been so long. Yeah. No, I got to think about that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it's it's L, I've, it's been so long. I feel like the LP has always been a part of my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like your mom. How'd you meet her? <laughs> <laughs> And then I really, and then uh, I didn't, I didn't know that Dexter Wimberly, our former board member, came to LP through stumbling in the laundromat. Where y'all don't know if you know that, but that's how we, that's how Dexter found out about LP and then joined the board after that. Oh wow, that's interesting. Yep. Oh, that's great. I love Dexter, man. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what he says. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. We'll, we'll, we'll take that. We'll take yeah, that. yeah, take it. Yeah. Well, and he—it's incredible. He supported our work, you know, in the early years for sure. Yeah. He's helping get you know the project that we brought to the LP. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just remember you coming to me and saying, you know, we had the opportunity to share our work in a laundromat, and I was like, really? What? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> but we had been dreaming and scheming about stories, and so. I remember having this deadline that was just like, okay, we have the summer. Mm-hmm. We only had a couple months to put it together. Mm-hmm. And it was this great, beautiful thing to kind of give us that momentum to create a show. And it was our first show together mm-hmm. and our first show in a laundromat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we were really, and we had just, we had been working with um, StoryCorps at that point, And we were really looking for a way to like meet people where they are at mm-hmm. rather than, you know, inviting people to a, a certain time on the radio, but we really wanted to be where people are at. And so it was like a natural sort of fit in where we were in our creative practice of trying to figure out how mm-hmm. we do things in community spaces, spaces where people are, go and have to go, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, so, um, so what made you like, say you said you wanted to be a resident artist, like, oh, was that something that, you know, uh, kind of natural, like you were saying just now, was just, part of where you wanted to be at that moment? Or was it something like, oh, I'm going to try something new? Like, how did you feel about that? I think particularly when you're, uh, for at least for, for, for my half of this collaboration, I'll say that, like, you know, a lot of times you read these, especially particularly when you're kind of uh, starting out younger in your practice, you know, it's really intimidating to read all these language from these grants and applications and residencies. And then there was, like, and you know, we, we already had this inclination that we want to be in non-traditional spaces. We don't, we don't want to be in typical spaces. And you know, I have a theater background as well, and we were like constantly trying to find ways to like rethink the relationship between the people formerly known as an audience mm-hmm. and uh, you know, stories and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And there was just something about the LP, and I don't remember if it was specifically just reading, um, like reading how um, the invitation to apply was worded, or it was talking to Petrushka or Risa, <laughs> but it was like, it was like, I wasn't applying to anything that was foreign. Like it was like speaking our language. Mm-hmm. It was it was like everything was coded in the things that like were reference points for understanding that we were like, wow, these are our folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in some thing, some far away that some mysterious body is going right. to like choose. You know, it was like, yeah. wow, these are our folks, and they're they're doing what we do mm-hmm. in the way that we want to do it. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. What about you? When you're is it? Similar, does it resonate that way? Um, well, the, can you repeat, like, what? So, you know, uh, 
just the desire to do this kind of work to begin with, with the LP, you know. Like. So what was beautiful, actually, so Michael was supported in the first residency, but what was so nice was that we were a collaborative pair, and so, like, our work was still welcomed, you know, to be supported in that way. Mm -hmm. I think... I think, you know, we had just spent, I don't know how many months or years, two years, kind of traveling around the country um, with StoryCorps and, mm -hmm. and kind of being enriched in all those stories. And we're excited about the idea of creating radio, but also ways in which, you know, we had heard thousands of stories that we knew were going to be archived in the Library of Congress, but may not see the light of day. Yeah. And so we had this real hunger to both sit with people for a really long time. That was like a big desire to be able to like sit and do oral histories with people for hours and just let them share their story, but also create really creative ways for stories to get out there. And so we were interested in how to incorporate it into music and how to, um, and so the, the laundromat just seemed like this incredible place. I mean, as a New Yorker, most people have to take their laundry there. And the idea that we could do it in a local laundromat and connect with our kind of community in that way was really beautiful. Working with local businesses was always something of interest to us. So it was just this natural, I mean, it was, and it was such a beautiful thing. Like the second we put the audio on, so we created these audio documentaries and still photographs that we hung above the washers. Mm -hmm. And the second that the audio started playing, it was so incredible that the soundscape of the laundromat just kind of it was this added layer, right, mm. to, to the stories that we had created. And, mm -hmm. and there was something beautiful about like how we, ha you know, we had some sound design in the piece, but really the sound design <laughs> was this co-creation with what was happening in the mm -hmm. space. And that's mm -hmm. something that I think we've always kind of then drawn awesome. from of how to, how to incorporate the space and the people that are in the space into the work um, has kind of been this like, yeah, this interest that's continued. And it's and it's and it's really I think it's really beautiful at least to us in particular to deal in sound in that way. Mm -hmm. So where you only have one uh, sensory uh, sense that's experiencing what you're experiencing, mm -hmm. and it's totally different. And it's a very different way that like our culture, our society at this moment consumes information, right? right? To really just like f allow yourself to like free your imagination to mm -hmm. paint the picture of what the sound is introducing to you yeah. uh, combined with what's coming out of the speakers but also the sound design that's created by the physical environment that you're in like yeah. cr it creates a really nice texture that I think mm -hmm. is is kind of exciting yeah, yeah that great. and it was right at the moment right before po like podcasts weren't a thing at that moment right. like yeah. it would that would come a couple years later mm -hmm. so even like thinking about not listening to radio or not listening to audio that was not on a radio was mm -hmm. was an idea that wasn't sort of in the ether the way it is now that right. we can listen to podcasts via on all our devices mm -hmm. right, and that right. was kind of interesting mm. so I mean and there's something uh, great about audio because uh, you know uh, it's something that you can listen to while doing something else yeah. right so it becomes part of like a rhythm you know you're kind of listening to this by doing laundry you know it's like uh, becomes part of your life in a way right at least for that moment yeah. totally um, do you hadn't do you remember any reactions from folks or anyone you know like say oh what is that me or like was that someone that i know or any other so we definitely did a lot of laundry that like couple weeks you know it was really fun to watch people kind of be immersed in it um we had actually you know one of the most like initial processes we had is like we would just put a board up where people could write comments because mm -hmm. um, we just wanted some initial feedback for people that we didn't meet and I remember people being really moved by stories and people kind of talking about how you know at first they weren't paying attention but then they were like caught up in and, and we made them modular really so that people could be listening for two minutes or three minutes or four minutes and they'd get kind of a sense of something that mm -hmm. they could take away mm -hmm. or they could listen to the entire hour you know, and hear all the, and hear this diversity of stories. I mean, I think something that um, that you guys are doing are really creating this collection of stories, right? And that's something that's kind of been at the heart of our work is mm -hmm. thinking about how do multiple voices then create this larger narrative, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, that speaks to what the community is. Mm. Yeah. And how do people see themselves in that narrative, yep. you know? And I think that was what was exciting about being in the laundromat and one of the responses that we got from folks where people were like, well, this is kind of better than Judge Judy, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or whatever was on the TV, you know, which I think was interesting. Um, and people would pop into the laundromat, even, and even the, 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 the family that, um, that owned the laundromat, this Palestinian family um, who's 
this na- these guys have been in the neighborhood forever. Um, and they used to joke that Jay-Z's like best friend used to live next door upstairs. <laughs> and even as he was kind of on his ascent, they would always like talk about like they could name the times after his reasonable doubt came out that he was like pulling up in his car in front of the laundromat. <laughs> That's how long these guys have been, you know, kind of been there and immersed wow. in their neighborhood. And um the um, the the so the younger guys uh, who like the, basically the children of the guy who owns it the man who owns it um, it were his kids and his kids uh, said okay and then had to convince him to oh, do it wow. and I, I don't remember all of our uh, interactions but there was a you know there was an intense negotiation because mm-hmm. laundromats are you know as you guys know like people see them as like the owners it's the most utilitarian space on earth right that like does one thing and one thing only <laughs> and like introducing anything out slightly outside that realm is yeah. like mind blowing right <laughs> and so like but but like the, the younger guys who ran you know and there's guys that like I had seen in the neighborhood forever and like so it was like for them it was like it was like you know obviously I could talk to them um, and then they talked to their father and their father at first was you know he's, you know He's a business guy. He's like all business, you know. But like he listened to these stories and he like got it immediately. He, mm. I think he listened to one story and he was like, "Oh, I get it. All right, yeah." This and then he told some, st- and then his this his son told me this story that that his uh, father told him about some friend he had mm. as a kid mm. in Palestine mm. and blah blah blah. So it like it triggered something in him right, that right. like caused him to like right. have some memory that I don't know when the last time he had right. that memory is. And wow. that's that's what's beautiful about yeah. that yeah. feeling included in a narrative. No, definitely. And, and in terms of the, the content and, you know, the conversation, the theme that you chose, Dan, you know, it's uh, housing and human rights. So uh, how did that play it out into, you know, uh, the conversations you had with folks? How the range of, I know it's a long-term project and it's been going for a long time. So, but, but what, what would you say... Um, uh, were some of the sparks for that conversation about housing specifically? So we were traveling around the country with StoryCorps, and um, I mean, it was the heart of the kind of most recent foreclosure crisis that was happening mm-hmm. around the country. Um, and then coming back to New York, you know, to live, it's like it was, you know, that was butting up against uh, the long-term affordable housing crisis, right? It's like it's been going on for for a decade. So um, we were really interested in in telling that story, we actually initially got interested in thinking about the history of the squatting movement here in New York City, and we're kind of inspired by the movements around housing. And I think that's kind of what inspired the project as this, you know, we call it sort of a creative project about the dignity of a place to call home. Mm-hmm. And it was this kind of blend of looking at both the social movements that are trying to um, kind of push it around issues of dignity and housing, but um, also all the people that are left behind in that conversation and so and I think there was an added layer that like when we were on the road particularly it's funny I haven't talked about StoryCorps in I don't know years <laughs> um, and so and I also think you know we should talk we should like give some context around housing and human right but I think I think the added layer, in addition to what you're saying, is um, no matter, like we had, I remember we had this distinct conversation where we were recording these stories of people as part of the StoryCorps project. So anyone, so it was like average Joes, anybody could come in and record their story. But we also were part of a bunch of special initiatives. So that was like the inaugural oral history collection for the 9-11 Museum, Mm -hmm. for the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History and Culture, which specifically like something like 2,000 stories of African Americans across the country, which, you know, in and of itself is a record of the late 20th century Mm -hmm. and the black experience. And so... And then there was there we did a there was a we were involved in collecting stories around um, Alzheimer's and memory loss, and we thought that no matter what anyone was talking about, like when they were given um, forty minutes and a microphone and a loved one, mm. no matter what the actual tangible substance of what they were talking about is, ultimately nine times out of ten it felt like what they were really talking about is home. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this idea of this sort of like existential, philosophical, theoretical, sometimes even very like tangible, practical yeah. idea of what home means to these all these folks. Mm-hmm. When given the opportunity to re- record your story for posterity, mm-hmm. those are the stories that seem to emerge. And so um, what we wanted to honor, like rooted in our like 
our history and our relationship to the squatting movement in particular, but like, you know, social justice movements, we were really curious what home means to the people um, for whom home is precarious. Mm -hmm. And that sort of led us into this sort of space to be like, well, you know, we were kind of like in a, you know, a particular kind of, probably I would say a more didactic phase in our practice. And we were like, yo, what happens if we had a project that was called Housing is a Human Right so that anytime someone said housing, they had to say human right. And then it was like our little like intervention, right? And like I, we would probably never ever name a project like that again. <laughs> but like that's what you do in your certain, right. you know, certain age or certain yeah. point in your practice. And so we, we created this project, Housing is a Human Right, which is this kind of multi-platform project that has a, had a 10-year life, really, mm -hmm. which is kind of like really interesting when we're having this conversation. I'm a little wispy and nostalgic oh. about <laughs> that particular project because mm -hmm. um, it had many different iterations over the years, uh, primarily focused around um, um, or through the medium of photos and audio. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Um, just that the, I think we were, we were thinking back then, like, oh, we could do this project for the rest of our lives, you know, like, what was so fascinating to us, you know, having come, come from doing these, like, hundreds of stories about American human condition, right, for StoryCorps, but we were interested in how this question of home kind of got at the heart of it for most people, but also just it showed the connections and the differences, and there were always stories around it. Like, no matter what, we could have, a, like, a real interesting conversation when we talk to people about home. Yeah. And so it was this beautiful entry point, I think, for us, for a lot of different stories. And, and it's, it's, like, a collection of stories that I think I'm still really proud of. I mean, we still play those stories and share them, you know, with communities all over. Mm -hmm. Because I think, I think they represent, you know, we crafted them in a way to tell you know about why housing and home is kind of important to people and in, in, in the stories that drive them around the issue. And it's timeless in some ways, right. you know, for better or for worse, and right. where we are as a people that we're you know struggling to like maintain home, mm -hmm. but like these stories are, mm -hmm. you know, they, they continue to be relevant and they will be for the foreseeable. Mm -hmm. So that was ten years ago, right? And mm -hmm. it's you know it's been a journey, right? Mm -hmm. um, so. What 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 some of the other creative projects you've been working on since then? Maybe just a few a summary or ways you want to like, or how does they how do they connect? How you think about housing as human right storytelling uh, coming from two thousand nine till till now ten years? <laughs> I mean, I think we're always just driven by the sense of. Um, searching for the right form, right, for the work and just iterating like crazy, right? So, um, you know, when, like, we were really interested in this oral history practice and radio, um, and then um, and then when Hurricane Sandy happened, I, like, remember we were in this charging station in Red Hook and had this sense that there's no way we're gonna be able to sit down with the millions of people, like even, even the hundreds of people that were in that charging station after Hurricane Sandy that were just gathered to try to you know, get some respite from the storm. It was just, there was no way we we're gonna be able to record all their stories. And so and I, we were struck by kind of someone put out their cell phone and they had taken photos right out the window. And it was so interesting how you know, they had kind of started to, doc people are documenting these things right in their, in their pocket with what they have in their pocket. So, it became interesting to us, this idea that, like, well, how could we harness that and how could we capture that? And so that, that project kind of, it really just came out of the moment of sitting with someone and wanting to tell their story and thinking about what are the tools we have. And so that just became this whole collaborative experiment. I mean, I think collaboration had been a huge part of our work prior, but we were really interested in, okay, how does the process of telling stories and collecting stories? And, and I think there was this drive to become curators, at least for a while with the project. So the project became Sandy Storyline, which is this participatory project that kind of consumed us for a bunch of years um, after Hurricane Sandy. And uh, yeah, it was collaborative in so many ways. We had an all-volunteer team that was um, helping collect and gather stories and do education workshops. We had a design team that was designing a platform where people could share stories. I mean, it was this incredible experiment at collaboration and collaborative media making. Mm -hmm. And I think really suited us as like emerging artists wanting to meet other media makers and test things and try things out. And 
Yeah, I think it represents like one of one of two uh, kind of consistent through lines as our work has evolved and changed. And one is this sort of participatory urge mm -hmm. that I think is a useful designation for our work and mm -hmm. for other people as well around um, ways to, again, rethink the relationship between maker and the people formerly known as the audience. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's uh, I think it's particularly relevant when talking about documentary and the sort of, you know, um, the extractive sort of colonial right. practice mm -hmm. of documentary that has sort of predominated, right? But if we think that like, well, just because that's one way that we hear about it doesn't mean that there are thousands of other tra traditions right. of storytelling mm -hmm. that are ultimately documenting our own mm -hmm. life. And when we think about sort of storytelling as, you know, you know, the sort of metaphorical first impulse of people around a campfire, yeah. in many ways that story is that they were sharing is an impulse to like perform their va core values, yeah. document them and sort of like record mm -hmm. them for the future. Right. And so I think that like we've like our, we've had a bunch of different projects that um, have different levels and tiers of collaboration based on the sort of demands and requirements or sort of reality of the particular projects. But the exploring with this sort of collaborative participation, both from the makers and the people who are privileging us with our space, with the, um, with the you know, privileging us with their access to their experience mm -hmm. um, is really important to us. Mm -hmm. And I think what where that is, and the other piece too, I'll say before I go there, before I finish that thought is that th there's like something that's highly performative about our work that's like that we're really interested in. I think like, you know, theater was my first love. Um, and I always get a little nostalgic in any sort of space, especially <laughs> I don't spend a lot of time in, in, the, in traditionally theatrical spaces at the moment. But I think there is like, we, we, at all our various projects, we performed with how to experience these the things that we create in community. Mm -hmm. rather than in isolation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that, that aspect of the distribution, whether we're making uh, you know, an interact, interactive documentary or whether it's a short film or it's a photo, a, a, a photo exhibit, um, these ideas all kind of run through it. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's kind of like where, I think those are kind of streamed, because in some ways we've come full circle where we got a commission uh, from the working theater um, a couple years ago to do as part of their, uh, they had this project called, uh, what was it called? Five Boroughs. One City, Five Boroughs. One, mm -hmm. one City, Five Boroughs, where they commissioned five groups of artist teams to sort of investigate place or neighborhood mm -hmm. in the five boroughs. Mm -hmm. Our, we were we were we lucked out that um, our sort of venue partner that the theater assigned us with as part of the commission was the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, mm -hmm. um, which is at once an amazing space and also yeah. a completely intimidating space yeah. to think about, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you're not like, I don't know, Mahalia Jackson or like yeah. Duke Ellington or somebody yeah. who has filled that space with yeah. all that they are. Right. Um, so, and we're, you know, Deep in this community, and, and it's and it's um, interesting to think about how we create a create a piece that's uh, performative, that is a performance, that's pageantry mm -hmm. and uh, stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a quick question, yeah. just on that. I'm only going to mm -hmm. interject once or twice. Um, but thinking of I that, right? I know. <laughs> thinking of that, right? Like your your medium through storytelling, you know, whether it be um, radio, podcasts, documentary, videos. Uh, I think my grandfather came to visit me here and uh, he grew up listening to the symphony on the radio. And so I was working at Lincoln Center at the time and he was like, let's just get a ticket and let's go listen, let's go to the film, listen to the symphony. And it was his first experience actually experiencing it live. Um, something that he had heard his entire life and it was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. But I wonder what lives the different mediums play, whether it's in person or if it's an audio recording, like how is that experience its own um, experience in and of itself. Does that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, I think the through line, like Mike said, is that always kind of community. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I love about audio is playing it out loud for a group of people and getting to watch, you know, their faces. And the same is with film. You know, we love to do community screenings where there can be a discussion and it's this event, right, um, where people can experience something together. The installation work, um, you know, one of the pieces we designed around our Sandy project was uh, an installation at the Tribeca Film Festival where the physical installation was literally in the round so mm -hmm. that people were both watching a screen but also watching each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's just always kind of been the sense. I think, I think each medium uh, presents just new opportunities. So radio is you know, so beautiful in mm -hmm. terms of what it brings in terms of the voice. Um, mm -hmm. 
and the imagination, mm-hmm. you know, just allows for so much. And I think we've been so fascinated with film and what that visual medium can provide, mm-hmm. but still having this really strong base in sound and sound design and, and the audio yeah. has kind of always been a really important through line for us, mm-hmm. even in our films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we, so rather than trying to find the story for a medium, mm-hmm. we find the medium that is dictated by the story. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, that's exactly sort mm-hmm. of like what leads us to sort of how Rachel answered that because mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's like supreme for us. Yeah. I think one example um, that's really interesting relative to that experience is uh, we have a project called Water Warriors. It's mm-hmm. a short film about indigenous resistance. Mm-hmm. It's a success story. Mm-hmm. It's 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what's really interesting about um, uh, how our distribution has worked. And so often um, some people, you know, it's anyone can sort of any educate, it's licensed at the moment uh, for educational distribution. So any institution, community group can can show it. And some people um, will approach us and be like, oh, but it's only 20 minutes. What do we do? Mm-hmm. Like, what, do you have something that you could, we could program with it? And I'm always like, you can talk. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, people are like, well, I don't know. We'll get back to you. And then if and when, and they usually do come back and they're like, okay, we're going to show it. Like, and then we're just going to talk. Maybe could you come and like, you know, do a Skype in or whatever. And like always, there has never been a post conversation that has not been cut off by the fact that like whatever venue that they're at, it's time to leave. Right. And so like a couple times this 20 minute film, we've had two hour conversations Mm -hmm. that have been just elicited by people Mm -hmm. present. And that is as important Mm -hmm. um, as the actual content itself. The impact of that and the conversation that spark. Mm -hmm. Um, So just changing a little bit. So um, you travel a lot and (laughs) you go, you know, everywhere all the time. So it's like, oh, are they in New York now? Or <laughs> it's hard to, to know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious about challenges of traveling, and especially because your work, you know, focuses on the environment and sustainability, and thinking about that. Uh, and also, in terms of connections with people, since you're like everywhere, like how would how does that play out, and how does that, you know, uh, how you handle all of those complexities? Yeah, how do we handle those complexities? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, we are always steadily on the road. I mean, I think um, I think one part of that conversation, one part of that question, as it relates to the sustainability, um, you know, it's definitely something we wrestle with. I think there's a um, there's a um, there's a give and take between the impact of personal choice versus the intervention on structural systems, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, we you know have a very explicit commitment to trying to uh, like make structural change. that um, at least what we tell ourselves is, you know, the impact of being able to, like, be in conversation, in community, face-to-face with people constantly sort of is moving that needle, or like we hope, is contributing to conversations that are moving that needle around making meaningful structural interventions Mm -hmm. around these fundamentally extractive systems which are, you know, leaving us in this sort of plight that we're in, you know? So yeah, I think that's something that like we wrestle with a lot too. Yeah. It's like so how do how do we balance that? And how do how can we make uh, you know choices that you know are balancing sustainability while you know doing carbon hungry things right. yeah. like yeah. flying on planes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then the connection with the community and where you're traveling, like all yeah. those interpersonal relationships that you know build and how you know traveling is it's hard to keep up you know yeah. all those things. So yeah, yeah. Um, how would you? Yeah. I mean, I think for us, our work is kind of a balance between local stories and some of like national and international. Mm-hmm. You know, I think for us, we try to put in the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like both <laughs> at home with family right. and friends, of but course. also, you know, just with the communities we're trying to build with. So, you know, we don't usually go to a place without a lot of preparation and a lot of conversation right. um, and a lot of dialogue. You know, like we're always like we're talking to people in our films and stuff like on WhatsApp and like Facebook, you know, <laughs> just we're like we're in communication all the time. And what's mm-hmm. nice is like, you know, even as film projects and things have gone on, like, you know, uh, folks stay in touch and that, mm-hmm. that connection. I think we've been blessed, right, with the technological advances where you can stay connected in a better way mm. to people globally. Um, we were really excited, like recently one of our um, people in, in our Water Warriors film was just sharing like her son's like graduating from 
like high school and moving on and just like had these like <laughs> beautiful photos taken yeah, of him. Yeah, looks like a little man. <laughs> and, and our film is a baby's like oh, he's 12. 11, yeah. 12. 12. I mean, sorry, Isaac, to call you a baby. <laughs> you are a baby, dude. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the film, he's really like coming up, you know, like it's really about him kind of taking on a role as like a person in a social movement, right? As like a 11, 12 year old, which is crazy in sound now. Just, but so I think we try to stay as connected as possible as much as anyone can. Right. Right. Um, but for us, like we really go places and c try to contribute to communities that we're a part of and in mm. as much as we can. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and also because of the traveling, I imagine because you have you, is there larger issues, issues, uh, your films and your work. Uh, they're hyper local versus like national scale things. So, yeah. do you find um, connections between those two, or like between places? Maybe like the hyper local in New York might be some their similarities, and you know, I don't know, somewhere else. Totally. And, like, and how those two, and what things might be different. So. I think the biggest obstacle to that is like people's, uh, I don't know what the word, not parochialism, I don't know what the word is, but like often people are like, you know, I, I, I compare it to like a neighborhood, like in New York, like neighborhood nationalism in New York, where <laughs> folks are like, yo, like you have no idea how real it is over here. You live five blocks away. <laughs> it's so different here, right? And like that's, you know, happens on a national level where people are like, no. So particularly Waterworks is another good example because people are like, oh, it's a Canadian story. Can Canadians don't have, you know, problems. I'm like, have you heard of colonialism? Right. You know, like... Is it any different? They still have the queen on their money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> let's 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 think about this just on a meta level at least, right? right. And so, so like, I think our biggest obstacle to sort of connecting local and national is often just people's perception of their disconnectedness. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to think. Well, I think today is like the inter the anniversary of the internet. Right. You yeah, know, right. the yep. invention of the internet and like the irony of like this interconnected area, yeah. uh, interconnected world is like at least me in some ways in America with like the divide. Yeah. that we're experiencing in some ways I don't think I felt ever as disconnected yeah. from people as I did you know thinking about like the 90s kind of running around the neighborhood yeah. and just like you, you know I felt like I had a different level of access even though I, my access was nil because yeah. I didn't leave like a 10 block radius so you know as a kid you know you're not yeah. moving around you know and so um, but like it's really beautiful to see those connections and it's also beautiful to watch people make those self-discoveries. Mm -hmm. We did a panel with the NAACP at the United Nations um, uh, last year or the year before with Water Warriors where we brought together um, uh, this one woman, from indigenous woman from um, the Mi'kmaq uh, First Nation, mm -hmm. uh, Elsa Pugtuck First Nation of the Mi'kmaq people in uh, uh, Mi'kma'ki, so-called New Brunswick, Canada. And um, together with folks from uh, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, um, uh, that the NAACP chapter had brought. Yeah. And these two women shared the same exact stories. Mm. Like, you would think they had, like, they'd lived next door to each other because mm. they were sharing the same, they were talking about their water challenges, not having fresh water, drinking water, not potable water. They were talking about, you know, the companies that come in, the sort of, like, diseases and health ailments that their kids are dealing with because of, you know, being fence line communities around sort of these industrial factories. Um, and these two women who are separated by race, they're separated by geography and nationality, mm. like we're sharing the same exact story. And it was just a great example mm. of just how similar our struggles are in so many ways. Um, you know, which is something that I, you know, just a note to ourselves, it was something we've been trying to like stir up more is particularly around uh, this like bringing communities that are disparate together is like trying to like develop, you know, as we stand here on, you know, the traditional lands of the Lenape, the Canarsay, right. the Brooklyn um, uh, uh, First Nations, like how can we build black and Indian solidarity is something right. that we've been really interested in. Like what does that look like? What does that mean? Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's great. That is great. Yeah. It's, you know, just thinking personally, I'm, I'm from New Orleans originally, mm -hmm. and so thinking about the Mardi Gras Indians also. Exactly. And still there's a disconnect, right? Completely. So uh, even, even in that culture, I don't know if black people would even see any connection, even through so. that, right? Yeah. That's just totally ingrained, a total, like, 
symmetry and connection to one another's cultures. Um, yeah. It's very interesting how that disconnect actually happens and what's creating that disconnect yeah. and how you build that that connection. Yeah, how do you Something build that connection? Right in front of your face. Right too. in front of your face. So. Something we noticed too when we were with StoryCorps is the amount of like black folks, particularly in certain states who identified uh, like on this little, so when you come to StoryCorps, you just fill out your name and you identify your sort of lineage, nationality, ethnicities. And people, there were so many black folks who would check who would write in Czech other mm -hmm. as a part of their uh, sort of ethnic background and put Cherokee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, that's like a common conversation among black folks in America that like, who are like folks who like claim charity lineage. And I, I would guarantee that there are more people that claim that lineage than ever <laughs> Cherokees ever existed, yeah. <laughs> ever. <laughs> but like why that's important yeah. is because it like speaks to like a historical connection between people who have both been like faced with like have stared genocide in their face right. and like we've thought about all right look we have this sort of historical connection and that that like those connections might not be in actual DNA but it's in the DNA and the, of the stories of our communities yeah. right. and it provides such opportunity I think yeah. to build in ways that like uh, we haven't I could go down a, that yeah. route. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's like the essence of why we're storytellers, because it's like such a privilege. I mean, you you if you get to sit across from someone with a microphone, it's like you get to see all of humanity. You know, you get to see the connection you feel to them and the connection to every other story and every other person you've gotten to meet. Mm -hmm. And that's it's such a beautiful thing to feel that connection. Mm -hmm. I think that's like definitely why mm -hmm. we continue to do it. Is there any particular story that has stood out to you that you still like, oh, remember, or like, you like, or you know, an example of one that you're like, oh, this has been a great, in all, I mean, you talked to so many folks throughout the years. Yeah, it's that, so hard. That is, that is shareable. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's shareable. I mean, for, I don't have a particular one. I think for me, when I was starting out, it was really important to hear stories of older women. Mm. Um, so I remember meeting, like, feminists on the road and, like, all these organizations, right? Like, even in Texas. I think I was, like, somewhere in Texas. Um, and, uh, and, and I think just to, to feel like there was all this wisdom that, that I had to draw on, you know, when I was in my early 20s that I felt, like, not so alone. Mm -hmm. To, to know that there was all, all of these people that had lived these lives and made decisions. And, and so that was super powerful for me and continues to be, you know, and people, I mean, some of the hardest stories are the most tragic. I remember there was a woman that had lost her son that like still brings me to tears, but even now just like she was just so emotional sharing with a friend about the loss of her son um, who had been killed in a car, in a car accident. And it was just... I don't know, just like people's humanities and how and their resiliency at getting through something that seems like, you know, would be, you know, just change your life so much. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that just comes to mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in terms of your process, like you know, you're working, uh, thinking about storytelling and your projects. Um, so. Uh, I know you do videos, I mean, filmmaking, documentaries, how do you, you were saying earlier that you, the, the story the, decides the medium, right? How do you come to, uh, into the process for choosing that? In, in that's a great question. That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> How do we limit the stories we do? That's like, the you know, because it's. And just, limit the medium so it's not 30 different mediums. Um, it's multi platform I mean, life. There's just so many things that we want. I think, you know, you find a certain spark of something that feels like, okay, this is the right timing or this is the right, this person is captivating or, you know, like this is something that I feel like I'm like deeply drawn to doing. Um, but it kind of just, it just kind of takes over. It's just like the idea is sparked in that moment. Like mm. there was no way the day after Hurricane Sandy happened that we were not going to do a project, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that, that just made the most sense. It's like, we're from New York. My parents live on the coast. Yeah. You know, it's like, this is, this is, a, this is important. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think, I feel like with Sandy Storland, it was this, um, you know, we had had been down, um, had just come up like, like six years earlier, prior, right? Five, six years prior, had just spent a number of time, a number of years, um, uh, sorry, let me think about, let me 
like word this, articulate myself. <laughs> so like six years prior to that was uh, Hurricane Katrina and I had spent a number of uh, months down there right after the storm and then, you know, the subsequent years uh, supporting folks, um, you know, going through that process. And we felt that like we could, like no one person could capture like this complexity of the storm. And so the form of an impulse to be able to sort of document this moment needed to be able to both in its sort of administrative and production processes and as well as creative pathways needed to have multiple entry points so multiple people could both see themselves reflected in the story as well as like in the structure of how it was engaging them with the invitation to participate Mm -hmm. Um, and you just couldn't we just couldn't imagine how to do that if we were making a 90 minute documentary directed by Michael Primo and Rachel Falcone, like it mm. just wouldn't work. Yeah. Right. I think with a, with a new project that I don't want to talk about too much, but um, it, it just like it, it, it's a, the, a new project we're, uh, we're working on where we're sort of like really fascinated by two uh, diametrically opposing sort of outlooks on the world and life. Mm. And our original idea was uh, was to, to do this project as a photo exhibit. It would be a photo, like large photo um, series. But in in a two D works on paper, we couldn't figure out how the um, fundamentally two ideologies that like both question the the. Um, the, what's it called, the legitimacy of the other. Mm-hmm. We couldn't figure out how in a mm-hmm. two-dimensional works on paper we could do that in a way that wouldn't require lots of text and explanation, but like mm-hmm. stand alone. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that, that, in our opinion, has to happen through the structure of a film. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can have, you can see yeah. right. multiple experiences represented. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that like gets at the emotional life. Because yeah. I think a mistake that we sometimes make and that is often made with film where people are like, well, film, we're just going to throw a bunch of facts there. Mm-hmm. And while film can convey facts and figures, it's, I, it's my opinion that it's a very ineffective medium for conveying facts and figures. Mm-hmm. I think a, an essay conveys facts and figures in a much more effective way. Mm-hmm. But what film does is add that emotional layer to the mm. conveyance of those facts and figures. And so it just, it just worked yeah. in mm. that way. So yeah. I think that's two examples great. of... Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Yay. So we're almost done. <laughs> no, we got like a couple more, more hours. I Come know. On. Yeah, <laughs> you ready, Mike? Keep talking. Um, so uh, in relation to your artistic growth and practice, reflecting back 10 years, what advice would you give your 2009 self or your 2009 practice? Ooh, such a good question. Hmm. Um, I would just say, like, believe it will happen. Um, just like keep and to make like as much work as possible I mean I think um, sometimes particularly early on you're just like trying to be you know perfect or you're like trying to figure things out and I think like some of the best lessons and the most growth um, we and I personally have had is just to make something and to try and to just go with my instinct and um you know, and I think also there's something about professionalizing the work. And so, like, I think um, that was, like, a big game changer for me when it's, like, I felt like I could make a living at it and I should, mm-hmm. um, which is hard when you're starting out and you're, like, juggling a bunch of jobs and you're trying to... But mm-hmm. I think the second um, we felt like we were able to, it just, you know, it was a game changer. Mm-hmm. Um, even just forming, like, a nonprofit to house the, the, the work... And you know, to, to create like to really further the mission of the work that we are doing was like a, such a game changer to feel like we we had an organization and a home for the, for the work that we were creating. Um, so yeah, I think it's important to have a home in some sense of whatever that means, like a home for your work in some fashion. But just make. I mean, I think I think two things that I think I'm constantly reminded of is like stay humble and don't burn bridges. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like. <laughs> It's like amazing how uncomplicated of a complicated idea that is, right? You stay <laughs> humble. You know, like it's so easy to be like, particularly in our like fast-paced society. I don't know if it was just like, you know, some of my like 
kind of like elder mentor types in like the sort of downtown New York theater scene and like um, you know, some of them are a little salty and will always be like, well, you know, young artists today, they just want to go from emerging to like, like the, the Lincoln Center. Like, you can't do that. And it's so true. Like, <laughs> but it's like something as a young artist, you're kind of just like, well, why am I not in Lincoln Center already? Like, you know, like, you know, so paying dues, I think, is something that's relative to like staying mm-hmm. humble. Um, but yeah. I don't know. I had another thought too. Uh, it's escaped me at this moment, but it's stay humble and don't burn bridges are huge. And mm-hmm. oh, the other thing is like just consume as much as possible and just make. Mm-hmm. I think the best I got advice I got, you know, from somebody, some photographer was just like, just go shoot. Like, you want to be a photographer, just go shoot. Like, you don't need an outlet or a magazine, just go shoot. Give yourself a project to like right. shoot anything that has read for this week, yeah. you know? <laughs> And then consume, consume, consume. Particularly, I think also like as like a very politically strident young man, like in particular, I had this mentor, uh, this cat named Ed Bullens, um, who was this amazing playwright, mm-hmm. um, uh, one of the first cultural ministers of the Black Panthers, uh, one of the architects of the Black Arts Movement. And he, um, you know, I came to him all strident and like F the world. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that I was, he had a conversation about, he was like, I, he was like, you need to read every Shakespeare play. Just read every single, and I was, as a kid, I'm like, what, that has nothing to do with it? And he's like, nah, go do it. Because he told me to do it, I was like, okay, let me start. I did not read every Shakespeare play. But <laughs> his point was that just like consume as much as possible and understand the masters. Whoever, like, whoever, consider whatever like paradigm or and even if that like paradigm is not culturally relevant or culturally specific to your particular experience your ability as an artist to like understand why sort of the dominant culture may deem this person a master mm-hmm. is critical to your ability to be able to like reinvent and rebel against that to create new stories and ways that like really push the envelope and speak to your community and however it is that you want to speak to your community mm-hmm. and I think that was like some of the best advice I've gotten as like a young maker just trying to my 2009 self just mm-hmm. trying to like you know, saying mm-hmm. F the world and like, yeah. you know, make something different. Yeah. But yeah. I can't do that unless you know what came before. Exactly. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Gotta do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what exciting projects? Yeah, I know you mentioned a little bit, but maybe, you know, that um, you'd like to share with the LP community? Um, I don't know, what can we share? What do we got going on? Um, well, we, we have a bunch of projects that are kind of under wraps, but um, we're excited to be working on some kind of long-term film projects. Yeah. Um, really, I think about issues of, yeah, thinking like Michael said about um, what does it mean to think about someone that maybe you think of as completely other, mm-hmm. but that there's this connection. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also doing like a collaboration with the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. So we're doing a series um, on their artists this spring called uh, part of their human journey initiative and so that's been super fun um filming choreographers and playwrights and hang out with bill t jones (laughs) make a little piece around like what's the you know exploring what the nature of what the provocation for creativity is is like what we're exploring through like these short little pieces Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's been fun like incredibly inspiring actually to just spend a lot of time with other artists that work in mediums that we are just like like the the first two we did were about you know dance choreographers so it's just like totally different mediums than what we work in, you know, playwright, we're going to be working with some composers coming up. So it's just Mm -hmm. super, it's been really inspiring to think about what they're doing in their practice and how that can relate to us. And I I think kind of drawing on what Michael said around just like consuming art. I mean, I think like consuming art, even that is in a medium that's different than what you're working in can be some of the most, you know, Mm -hmm. some of the best inspiration I feel like for film comes from some of the like painting or collage or, you know, other work we see in museum, you know, it's just, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and after 20 years of applying to Creative Capital, I got a Creative Capital Award this year. So we're, we're kind of excited about <laughs> yes. kind of what's in store this year. Congratulations. Um, That's and that and a, a fellowship from Open Society Foundation um, are like really kind of facilitating our ability to like dig deep. I think what is like one of the hardest 
projects we were doing, this feature film, which we'll be able to talk about. We just don't have the language yet to talk about it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's exciting. And we're working on a series on prisons, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which is be cool and sort of like the economic system that maintains mm-hmm. um, uh, the prison system mm-hmm. um, rather than just a legislative issue. It's a function of this billion dollar industry. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that and the, um, we're really excited about this sanctuary project actually, this uh, project with St. John the Divine mm-hmm. um, and that commission, which is exciting because we're gonna, we've been talking now with other um, uh, collaborators, uh, potential collaborators, a director, dramaturg type to um, um, work, put that feet back on its, put that work back on its feet. Mm-hmm. So that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, also because theater is like, you know, I worked in theater for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and haven't done a lot of theater lately, so I'm really, I'm particularly nostalgic mm. around like returning to like, and also terrified because working <laughs> in a three dimensional, working in a three dimensional space is just so different than the way we yeah. worked with in audio and radio and film. Mm. So it's like terrifying, but I think that ter- that terror is is exhilarating. Mm. So mm. I think we're excited to like create something pageantry. You know, we have a lot of homies in New Orleans I who are like it. deeply inspire like their theater making style and practice that how it sort of incorporates pageantry in a really rich way is I think been a deep influence over uh, since the last time we made a show so it's it's nice to be back in a theater to create something three dimensional and experiential and time based and Mm. ephemeral like that's exciting that's great that's That's great and one last question. Oh, I always ask everybody. Oh, <laughs> although we think we know the answer, but yes. <laughs> have you kept in touch with anyone from the LP from then uh, now, until now? You all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's important to pull up that you you are facilitators for the Create Change training yeah. program yeah. also. So We've done a bunch of those workshops yeah, with the pro- back, program. Yeah. And that's like been nice to continue to meet the cohorts across the years. And I mean, I think like Mike said at the beginning, it's like when we can't really remember a moment before the LP, you mm-hmm. know, like, it's just, was so, it's been such an integral part of our creative practice and growth as artists and yeah. Cool. Yeah, and I definitely, um, uh, what is it, Instagram stock, Facebook stock, like former LT, LP cohorts and peers who have like, <laughs> you know, moved on yeah. to like different places around the country or like doing different things. And it's always kind of like, I always get a little wispy. I'm like, oh, LP fam, that's what's up. <laughs> <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been a great conversation. So No, we're really honored that you're interested in keep talking to us. It's really a pleasure. It means a lot from you all. Thank you both for taking time out of your schedule to chat with us. It has been so interesting to reflect with you and hear what you've been up to. We'd like to thank Downtown Art and FAP NYC, uh, Ryan Gillum and Mike Hickey for all their support. We want to thank Rachel Falcone and Michael Primo, uh, collaborators on Storyline Media, for joining us in conversation today. And also a special thank you to Destiny Forbes, our LP 2019 Storytelling Fellow, for helping facilitate and create the conversation that you will be hearing. Happy 10-year anniversary, and thank you, everyone, for listening. This is Ryan Gillum for Artwork and Fab NYC. Our thanks to The Laundromat Project and our guests Michael Primo and Rachel Facone. If you want to learn more about their work or to hear other artwork podcasts, check out the links on our podcast page at www.fabnyc.org. I want to thank our podcast producer, Michael Hickey, and the Fab NYC staff, Addison, Emilio, Dakota, Imani, and Kim. Appreciation for our podcast supporters goes to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, the New York City Department of Small Business Services, City Council Member Carlina Rivera, the New York State Council on the Arts, and Con Edison. Thanks for listening.